I'm Jeannie Havland, and this is my Wilderness Moment. In 1994, my mother, living in Phoenix, Arizona, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. In a matter of months, I became my mother's mother, her caretaker, her power of attorney, and her daily visitor. I had to move her up to Bellingham from Phoenix because I was still working full time and my husband was still involved in his career and I had a teenage son that was a high school senior, I decided to put her in a brand new assisted living facility here in Bellingham and I visited her every day. Guilt followed me every day of the week because no matter how much I gave, it was never enough and I was running on fumes. And I would call out to God and cry and tell him I had nothing left to give. And could he please sustain me? Could he please refill me? And he did, he did. My mother's condition worsened rapidly and we had to move her into the Alzheimer's wing, the locked memory care wing. And she got pneumonia and died a very slow, very painful death in 2001. And I thought I can never live through this again. It just about took everything out of me. So we fast forward to 2014. I'm now retired, my husband's retired, and I'm noticing that my husband's forgetting our conversations as soon as they end. His memory was fading rapidly. He had a brilliant mind, and his mind slowly became agitated and confused and paranoid. I was terrified. We went to the doctor and, and he confirmed our very worst fears, John too was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And I'm thinking, God, I cannot do this again. I cannot do this again. I was staring into the very same wilderness I had stared at with my mother, and I didn't want another trip through this wilderness. We managed as best we could. I became my husband's mother and his caretaker and his nurse and his therapist and his driver he became increasingly reliant upon me. It was very, very hard. And toward the end of the summer of 2019, I finally had to admit I could no longer safely care for him at home. And I had to move my husband into the very same memory care wing that my mother had lived in, in the very same facility. He suffered a bad fall. And because he had the advanced directive, there could be no surgery and we lost him at the end of October 2019. This is still hard, it's really painful, it's fresh, but I will tell you that in my wilderness and my continuing wilderness, God meets me every single day. On my knees, with my face on my floor, I cry out to God and he fills me back up. He has never left me, he has never forsaken me, and I trust him. I so appreciate the courage and raw transparency of those who've shared their stories with us. Can we agree together that the liminal space, that in-between space between where we've come from and where we want to get to can be uncomfortable? And we just so desperately want to tie a nice, beautiful bow on the top of all of the stories. But the reality is that's not reality. We carry these things deep inside of ourselves. In our Wilderness Moment videos, 
We've shared the pain of anger, the desperation of recovery, the pain of family hurt, and today the wilderness of caregiving. But I want to remind you of the thread that has run through every single one of them. In every single liminal space, God showed up. And that's what he wants to do today. In the unknowns of this liminal space, I don't know about you, but I need an anchor. I need somewhere where that I, or something that I can lock into to hold me as God strips away things that I thought I needed, but now I find out that I don't need. And, and, and I find out that there were things that I thought I didn't need that I'm now holding onto as tightly as I possibly can. In those moments, we need an anchor of truth to ground us. We need bedrock. We need somewhere to plant our feet where we can actually say and mean, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Today I want to focus on an anchor of truth that is thousands of years old. I believe it is more relevant today than it has ever been before. I hope and pray that you will not dismiss it or overlook it because you've heard this all before. Because if you've been around church, I promise you, you've heard this before. But before I start, let me tell you a story. I want to apologize on the front end for all those of you who are afraid of flying Two weeks ago, I got on an airplane, I sat down, I buckled my seatbelt, and as soon as the flight attendant began to prepare for her pre-flight instructions, as soon as she said, good morning, everyone, and welcome aboard Ask Airlines, before she even held up that fake seatbelt, I had already ignored her. Along with everybody else in the plane, we're all looking at our phone, we're reading something, we are not reading the safety card in the pocket of the seat in front of you, we are paying no attention whatsoever because I've heard it all before. I know what the instructions are. Because I wasn't listening to her, I have no idea what she said. For all I know, maybe she said something different. Maybe she said, this is a seatbelt, and if you don't know how to operate one of these, you shouldn't be on an airplane in the first place. It really can't save your life if we plow into the ground going 600 miles an hour, but it'll make cleanup a whole lot easier. We'll be able to identify your body a little faster, so if you could put one on, we'd really, really appreciate it. I have no idea if she said there are four emergency exits on this airplane. You're never going to get to any of them if we hit the ground. But, you know, I just want you to know where the four of them are. If a mask falls from the panel overhead, please put it on over your other mask. It's not going to help you breathe, but it will muffle your screams as the rest of us focus on praying. And in the event of a crash landing, you can assume the crash position and hug your knees. That's not going to do you any good either, but it'll help you kiss your sorry, uh, uh, you know, rest of your life goodbye in those couple of moments. Thank you for your kind attention and have a really nice day. I have no idea. That could have been what she said. I don't know. I was ignoring her. But the thought struck me afterwards. None of the info that she gave me in that moment was there to limit me or scare me. In fact, it was actually intended to save my life. And if something did happen, I would probably regret not listening to what it was that she had to say, truthfully, that knowledge and information could have been very beneficial had I chose to listen. But I made the decision to ignore it. And truthfully, because I did that, I put myself at risk. The Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 20 that a man named Moses had an encounter with God on the top of a mountain called Mount Sinai. God has a message for his people. He gives it to Moses, and Moses is to carry it down the mountain to his people. Ten Commandments on which to ground their life. I would say this. If God thought it was important enough to write this, to etch this in stone, we should probably pay attention. 
A recent survey was done of modern-day Americans. They were simply asked this question, can you name one of the Ten Commandments? Most of the people were actually able to name one or two. But there were a few others that were included in their list that I thought were fascinating. Right alongside of thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not steal were the following commandments that people included in the list. Just do it. You deserve a break today. Don't worry, be happy. Do unto others before they do unto you. Don't drink and drive. Be a people person. And my favorite inclusion, smile. Apparently somewhere in history, people just started ignoring God like I ignored the flight attendant. Somewhere along the line, we figured we've heard this all before. This isn't vital information. I mean, really, Grant, you're going back to the Ten Commandments. Could you come up with something new and fresh? People have tried to change these and water them down for a long, long time. You know why? Because there's something inherent inside of us as people. We just don't like it when someone tells us what to do or how to live. 1989, a well-known media mogul was lecturing a group of newspaper executives. He made front page news when he suggested the Ten Commandments were out of date and they should be changed to the Ten Voluntary Initiatives that could guide more sensitive persons into a new age. Wow. Just so we're clear, they are called the Ten Commandments. They're not the Ten Suggestions. They're not the Ten Politely Stated Requests. They are the Ten Commandments from God, and we need to look at them today because they will ground us in truth no matter what wilderness we may have to walk through. Before we do this, I want to stop for just a second. How do you think God gave the Ten Commandments? What do you think his voice sounded like? What was the tone of his voice? Was he like a drill sergeant screaming in the face of his soldiers? Do this or die, maggot? Is that the way you picture it? What if it wasn't that way? What if it came in the form of a loving heavenly father speaking to one of his children? I just want this thing called life to go better for you. That's why I'm giving these to you. They're a gift. These are not restrictions. These will actually help you. What if the voice was a gentle thunder? What if it was earnest and yet calm? What if it was genuine and yet reassuring? What if it was like a father lovingly giving his children boundaries? What if it was loud but in a very comforting sort of a way? I think we assume wrong when we just assume there was anger involved in the way God was loving his kids with these beautiful commandments. So we're going to do a brief overview. This is not a theological treatise. We're never going to cover all ten. In fact, if you'd like to go back... Multiple summers ago, we actually did an entire series on the Ten Commandments. We did one commandment per week for ten weeks of the summer. It's back in the archive. I believe it's when I still had long hair. So just follow the hair back in the archive and you'll find it eventually back there in the day. Let's cover the Ten Commandments. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Why would God ask that? One word, focus. Basically, God doesn't want us to worship anyone but Him. He alone is to be our focus. He alone has the right to sit on the throne of our lives because he created us. So here's the bottom line. This is God's commandment. Don't have anything in your life that's more important than God. Don't allow anything to compete with his time, his attention, his money, his focus. Which, by the way, belongs to every single one of us. Take God seriously. Just don't take yourself so seriously. Number two, you shall not make, bow down before, or worship an idol. 
Why would God put that one in there? Because God knows that we have this natural human inclination to create shrines in our life. I read an interesting architecture magazine the other day that said this. Most people borrow money on their home and their car. You know what Americans spend most of their money on next? Their entertainment center. Wow. I'm not saying your television's bad. I'm just saying when it becomes and takes the place of God and distracts you from worshiping God, there's a problem. Laurel and I had our first home in a little apartment on the, I believe it was the second floor of an apartment complex in a city in Saskatchewan, Canada. There was a guy in our building who was having a love affair with a brand new yellow Corvette. It's a nice car. I think it was actually a restored, like maybe 74, 75, 76, somewhere in there. It was obviously new to him. It had nice paint, sunroof, leather interior. And every three days, like clockwork, he would wash and wax the car. And when he was done, he would stand back in awe. It's like, look at this vehicle. One evening, a hailstorm rolled into the town where we were living. And as marble-sized hail pounded down from heaven, I saw Mr. Corvette run outside and throw himself over top of his vehicle. Just in case you're wondering, hail in Saskatchewan that size, it hurts. It hurts really bad, but he was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of his car. That's idolatry. And before you judge him, idols come in all shapes and sizes. It can be a thing, a person, a child, a goal, a career. Just as a good reminder, you don't get to take your career to heaven, you only get to take your character. And God says when it comes to worship, only he is to be on the receiving end. Nothing else is to get in the way. Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Why is that in there? It's because when we take God's name in vain, we show disrespect. To take something in vain means we consider it meaningless and irrelevant. I don't know about you, but I think it's a travesty that most people in our country only know Jesus as an expletive and not as the name of the man who came to seek and save the lost. I think that's tragic. I love the fact that that name is supposed to be holy and revered. How must it break God's heart when he hears us invoking that name? Oh my God. Jesus Christ. When we disrespect the name of God, we're disrespecting him. And I think it goes further than that. What happens when we invoke the name of Jesus to try and prove a point or advance a political platform or justify a position? How tragic is it when we invoke the name of Jesus to try and get something from somebody? I believe God would say, God forbid. Number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Why is that in there? It's simple. God knows we need rest. Rest for the body, rest for the spirit, rest for the soul. We need rest. And what did God do on the seventh day of creation? He rested. Not because he needed to, but because he was setting an example for the rest of us who actually have to. And we're not going to get into a debate about Roman and Jewish and Greek calendars and whether or not the real Sabbath is Saturday, Sunday, or Monday. Here's the spirit of the law. Every single one of us should have a day set aside to focus on God and rest. You've heard me say this before. It bears repeating. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And the opposite of busy is rest. Here's the next one. Honor your father and mother. 
Why is that in there? Simple and practical answer. The way you treat your parents for your whole life will teach and influence your children on how they're going to treat you when you're old. So you should probably model something good. Treat your mom and dad like garbage, and guess what's going to happen to you when you're old? And it seems simple, right? Just honor your mother and your father. God wants us to honor those that he used as a vehicle to bring us into the world. How do you do that? By being respectful, by not ignoring them, by acknowledging their wisdom and honoring their legacy, for being grateful and saying, I have no idea how much it costs to raise me, but I'm going to say thanks. Now I know, because I've been watching the body language in the room for the last three services, this is a painful one for people. When I was a youth pastor, I spoke at a camp. They actually asked me to speak on the Ten Commandments, so I did. I got up, I gave my talk, gave some practical ways that we could honor our parents, and when the talk was done, a very emotional counselor came to the front, and she said this, and I'll never forget it. She said, my father raped me, raped me repeatedly for 12 years and my mother did nothing to stop him. How am I supposed to honor them? That's a legitimate question. And to be truthfully honest, I didn't know what to say. So I prayed and asked for God's help. And as we talked, she began to share that because of her pain, she'd actually become involved in counseling other victims of incest. And so I asked her, do you think, do you think that you could find any honor in the simple fact that God used them to create you? And now you are going to break this generational curse. You're going to represent Jesus for people who are brokenhearted. Because they have broken parents. God is going to use you to revolutionize a story in a community. And God simply used them to create the miracle that now is you. And instead of allowing your pain to crush you, you're going to turn it into a platform. And the world is never going to be the same because God used two very broken human beings to create the beauty that is you. I remember she said, so I can honor them just for creating me? I said, absolutely. Absolutely. God has created an amazing person using her pain to heal herself and others. Honoring is hard when life has been hard. Oh, and by the way, that should be this, a sign for those of us who were blessed with great parents that we should be so profuse in our honor of them. It's been this quiet in every other service when we got to this point too. So let's all take a deep breath. Uh, a Sunday school teacher was talking about the Ten Commandments in her class of five and six-year-olds. And after explaining the commandment on honoring their parents, she asked, is there a commandment that anyone can think of that teaches us how to treat our brothers and sisters? And without missing a beat, a six-year-old said, yes, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> So I'm going to point something out here. The first number of commandments deal with our vertical relationship with God. And then after a time, God turns our attention towards each other. God starts off this section by saying, you shall not murder. And I'm going to let you draw your own conclusions on that one. But let me tell you why that's in there. God loves life. 
He loves life and he wants us to protect it for everyone, born and unborn, young and old, regardless of our age or culture. We are to love life and respect it. And I know this is a tough subject and there's lots of debate on this. Is killing right in the name of justice? Is killing right in the name of protection? Does the Bible allow for justifiable killing in any way, shape, or form? Those are good and tough questions, and I wish we had time to dive into them. If you want to go back in the archive, we did an entire message where I tried to answer those questions. This commandment in this context is very specific. Only God can create life, and only God has the right to take it. Amen? No human especially a follower of God, should maliciously take the life of another human being in the act of murder. So what does it mean, thou shalt not murder? It means exactly that. Next one, you shall not commit adultery. Why? Because of the devastation it causes in the lives of people. I've seen it firsthand. I've never seen adultery make anyone's life better, ever. So God lays out a command don't have a sexual relationship with anyone other than your wife or your husband. Made the top 10, that's important. Next one, you shall not steal. You're just like, what's the big deal about that? And there are questions that go along with that, right? God gives something to people. He gives some people a lot and some people a little. Why? I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe someday I'll have an opportunity to ask God that question. But I do know this, when I take something that doesn't belong to me, I'm actually not taking it from them because none of us own everything. God owns everything. So if I'm stealing something from a person, I'm actually stealing from God himself. Not advisable. God doesn't like that. And there are new ways which we have kind of moved into this one. We may not be stealing actual items, but I wonder how many of us, if we were honest, have, have copied and pasted a paragraph of content from here and put it over here, just happened to not see something on my tax form, and so we're going to overlook that sort of thing. I mean, it's just the government. What's the big deal, right? It's not a character issue. I shall not steal. Here's the next one. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. It's pretty simple. Don't lie. Be truthful in your dealings with people. Be a man or a woman of your word. It's amazing in this culture how simply being honest actually makes you um, exceptional. And this aspect of not stealing someone else's property also extends to not stealing their reputation with false allegations. And here's the last one. You shall not covet, covet your neighbor's house, spouse, livestock, or anything else that belongs to them. Why would God put that in his top ten? It's because when you covet, when you want something that someone else has, here's what you're saying. God, you're not enough. I need that in order to make my life whole. I need that in order to be content. God leaves no room for being envious about someone else's life. We're supposed to be working on our own life and not envying someone else's. I would actually propose this to you. Don't ever wish you had someone else's life because you might just get it and find out it's not what you think. Okay, we just scratched the surface. I don't, even know, I don't even know if we did scratch the surface. That's an overview of these incredible theological anchors that ground us and grounded the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. And this was just the top 10. There were a whole bunch more that God was going to add, and we're going to add them in the coming weeks. 
As I looked at the Ten Commandments, I asked God, God, what are, the, what are the truths for today that we need in the midst of this wilderness, this liminal space between what we think we had in the past 2019, 2020, and what we hope to get to in the future? Truth number one, God's standards exist to anchor us in the liminal space. When life is chaos, we need an anchor. We need an anchor of truth because along with the truth comes the truth teller. Along with the standard comes the standard maker. And when we are wholly and completely obedient to what God has asked us to do, here's the promise that we actually get. Your life will be less complicated and you will have more joy because you're following God's plan. Truth number two, God has a problem with takers. You know, I noticed something about these commandments. God has a problem with takers. Isn't it ironic that the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave. When you make an idol, a shrine, you take God's glory and assign it to something else. When you commit adultery, you steal someone's spouse. When you steal, you steal someone else's, you take someone else's property. When you murder, you take someone else's life. When you lie, you take the truth and you hide it. God has a problem with takers. How do you feel when someone takes advantage of you? It's not a good feeling, is it? You feel used. You feel taken for granted. That's why God says, I love people whose life is all about giving. I struggle with people whose life is all about taking. So let me ask you some questions that I've been asking myself. What have you taken in the last week that's not yours to take? Somebody else's credit at work? A promotion that you didn't earn? Are you taking life too seriously or too lightly? To those of you who may be employers or managers, are you taking people for granted right now? And I know this is so hard. It's almost counterintuitive in our thinking because the world programs it into us. What do we say? It's yours for the taking. The commandments were designed to make us stop and think about our taking levels. When you're taking more than you're giving, you're out of balance and you've lost your anchor. Number three, Moses stood up for what was right and he actually ended up purifying a nation. In a few weeks, Pastor Brian is going to talk about the golden calf incident. It's coming up in the book of Exodus quite quickly. Some of you are familiar with it. I'm not going to preach Brian's message. I'm just going to kind of touch on a little element of it. So Moses has been running up and down the mountain delivering God's message. On one of his trips up the mountain, God covers the mountain with a cloud, and God and Moses spend time together, 40 days and 40 nights, same amount of time that Noah was in the ark. Apparently, God likes the number 40. And during this time, God gives Moses the commandments and the law and a whole bunch of, of tabernacle instructions. We're going to learn in the next couple of weeks about this portable church that the Israelites carried along with them to make sure that they had the presence of God right in front of them all of the time. Finally, Moses comes down from the mountain and finds the people of Israel in just a matter of days have already broken the first two commandments. They got bored, so they created a shrine. They actually made a, a golden calf, a golden farm animal, and they decided, let's go worship that. And before we judge them, let's just think about how easy it is for us to get distracted and worship something other than Jesus. 
I mean, Moses' anger burns up inside of him. He shatters the stone tablets that contained the commandments. And there's these rock piles laying on the ground, piles of anger produced by human failure. People had already broken them. I tell you what, if I was God in that moment, I would have just torched them all. But once again, the forgiveness and the patience of God shows up. But there's a moment, a defining moment, when Moses becomes a real leader. If you remember back to the beginning of the story, Moses did not want to be a leader. He said, God, I can't even talk straight. God's just like, it's okay, I'll be with you. That stick you have in your hand, we're going to do some really cool stuff together with that stick, Moses. Trust me. Moses comes down, shatters the tablets, and here's what happens in Exodus 32. We're jumping way ahead. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain, and he took the calf that they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder and made the Israelites drink it. That'll leave an impression, right? How popular do you think Moses was after he did that object lesson? But in doing so, Moses stands up for God's standards because he saw something. If they weren't obedient, they were going to go down in flames. Don't get me wrong. There is a time to stand up for what is right, but we're always supposed to do it in accordance with the full counsel of God. Because some of you are thinking, yeah, I'm going to go stand up for what I think is right. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to get on Facebook and I'm going to hit that button that says all caps. And I'm just going to let some people know. I'm going to invoke the name of Jesus all over their incorrectness. And we forget... That while the Bible says we should stand for what's right, it also tells us how we're supposed to take that stand. And it says things like a a soft answer actually turns away anger. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. It also says that the people of God are supposed to be filled with these beautiful gifts like gentleness, love, kindness. There's a time to speak truth, but we are always to speak truth with grace. I'll remind you, that's how God speaks to you. Last one, the truth of the Ten Commandments stabilizes the wilderness. You know, when I went back and read the Ten Commandments, I was struck with this simple thought. Here's what's grounding me right now in the midst of all of this chaos. It's pretty simple. If God is all I really and truly want, why would I need anything else? When I already have God, I don't need anyone else's stuff. I don't need anyone else's life. I don't want an idol to worship. That's a cheap substitute. I want to give respect and glory to his name. I want to honor honor those who've given me life because God used them to make me, when I live according to God's plan, I'm actually stabilized in all of the craziness. And couldn't we all use a little bit more stability these days? Now I know. Some theologians that are in the room, and God bless you, I'm so glad that you're here, you're whispering under your breath. It's just like, but Grant, this is Old Testament. Irrelevant. It doesn't doesn't mean anything anymore. Jesus came, fulfilled the law. I mean, we're already on to all of this new stuff. I would agree with the first part of your statement. Jesus did fulfill the law. He checked every single box. 
There are over 600 Old Testament laws, and Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. If we were honest right now, and we went through the top 10, I don't believe there's a single human being in this room that could say, I am doing all 10 of these perfectly. And if you claim to have done all 10 of them perfectly, I would refer refer you to the one that talks about lying, and I'd welcome you to the club of broken humanity. It's nice to have you company. Jesus did fulfill the law and he checked every single box there was which actually allows us not to be bound by a code of conduct but to be bound to a heart of gratitude that Jesus is a savior and that's good because I'm a sinner. Jesus took these commandments even further. He took the murder and adultery commandments and moved it from the body to the heart, from behaviors to attitudes, from outward to inward, from the shell to the core. Jesus said, look, the commandment says thou shalt not do this in your body, but if you even think it in your brain, then you're guilty. And you go like, I know, I'm guilty. Jesus came to save us from that. To wipe our record clean so we can come back to these fundamental foundational truths and see them through the lens of a loving Heavenly Father that says, I'm, doing, I'm giving you these because I love you. They're foundational, they're bedrock, they're timeless. Yes, they are standards, yes, they are commandments. And God says, if you are willing to obey me in this your life will be so much better. There you go. 20 years worth of Sunday school in 27 minutes. Now we're going to have an opportunity to do something with them. This entire month we've been focusing on prayer and I would love to take the last nine minutes that we have together and guide you through a prayer exercise where I'm hoping and praying this becomes unbelievably personal for you. My prayer is that right now we we, we would be so courageous to give God permission to say, God, I want you to point out the painful parts of me that are not in alignment with your heart. I'm not going to run from it. I'm not going to hide. God, I'm, I'm actually inviting your conviction. Now, let me make a line of demarcation right here. If I just finished going through the Ten Commandments and you hear a voice in your head that says, you are horrible. You can't even do this. Are you kidding me? And oh, by the way, all those things that you think nobody else knows about your list of ten, I know where you violated every single one of them. Just so we're perfectly clear, if you're hearing a voice of condemnation right now, that's not Jesus. That's Satan, and the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know how you resist? You say, God, that's condemnation. I reject that. Here's what I believe. I believe that you convict me because you love me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All of the old stuff is gone. Behold, everything has become new. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to listen to Jesus because I know this. Anytime he presses in on my soul, it's because he loves me and wants the best for me. But my challenge is this. What if, we, what if we turn towards God instead of turning away and we say, God, I want you to point out any place 
just with these 10, or I'm not in alignment with you. 